Grace, mercy, and peace be yours from God, our Father, and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. About six weeks ago, we began a season of the church year that is characterized by growing light. The season that we call Epiphany begins with a new light in the sky, a bright and unusual star that leads wise men to the place where the one who is born King of the Jews is. As the season progresses, we are meant to imagine that light growing more and more, even as Jesus grows into adulthood and begins to show us what it looks like that he has come to be the king and the savior of the world. He's baptized. We see the Spirit descend on him and the voice of the Father speaking over him. You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. The light grows and the picture of our king comes into ever clearer focus as he proclaims the reign of the kingdom of heaven and then proves it by teaching with authority and doing miracles that provide healing and restoration and even freedom from demon possession for many people. This week, as I mentioned earlier, this season of light comes to its big finish, its grand finale, with three of Jesus' disciples receiving an experience they will never forget, a first hand encounter with the glory of God. If you've heard this account before, I'd invite you to join me in thinking about it more closely today. And if you haven't heard this account before, listen in and be as surprised as Peter and James and John were at the top of that mountain with Jesus. Mark records that Jesus brought this inner circle of disciples up on a mountain with him. They had been together for a while now, about three years. And Jesus was drawing closer to the end of his earthly mission. We are not told in any of the Gospels uh, what the name of this particular mountain is. Uh, But it sounds a lot like what happens, for example, on Mount Sinai. Now, we know geographically it's not Mount Sinai, but you could be perhaps excused for mistaking it as Mount Sinai based on what you end up seeing on this mountain. For God shows up, just like he did in the Old Testament, and the visuals are stunning. First, we hear that Jesus' appearance is transformed so that divine glory is radiating from him. Mark says that his clothes become exceedingly white. And we hear in other gospel accounts of this event that Jesus' face even shines like the sun in all of its brilliance. For this brief moment, Jesus allows his divine glory to come out of hiding, to shine through. Not only that, But then we get two of the superstar prophets from the Old Testament, both known for their own encounters with God on Mount Sinai, suddenly showing up 
talking with Jesus about what's coming next. Elijah appears with Moses. Let's not rush too quickly from this and miss what effect this must have had on Peter, James, and John who are seeing this. Elijah had been gone for like 700 years. Moses had been gone for more than 1,300 years. Now, here they stand. For a first century Jewish believer in God, this is the stuff that dreams are made of. Think about what the equivalent would be. It'd be like me preaching right now, and then right next to me in the flesh show up St. Paul and Martin Luther in the year 2021. Think about going to a piano recital next month uh, for your child or grandchild, and then suddenly on the stage uh, shows up Bach and Mozart to offer their particular pieces. Imagine being a Packer fan sitting in the stands next fall at game 2021. The season has begun, and suddenly on the field show up Ray Nitschke and Don Hudson to shore up the linebacker and the receiver core. This is the stuff of fantasy. And yet for the disciples, they're experiencing it happening to them firsthand. Moses and Elijah, they're in the flesh in front of them. But that's not all. We read on in Mark 9, verse 7, and we're told that God's glory cloud shows up. The same cloud that guided the Israelites through the wilderness by day to the promised land. The same cloud that entered into and enveloped the tabernacle and the temple after they were built. The cloud which hid the real presence of God Almighty Himself. And a voice from the cloud speaks. This is my beloved Son. Listen to him. Just three years earlier, Peter, James, and John had spent their days eking out a living, catching fish like anybody else. And now, here they stand. And it's as if the door to heaven has been flung open and they've been ushered inside. The barrier between heaven and earth has seemingly been erased the limitations of time have been completely set aside, as is demonstrated by the presence of these two ancient prophets. And Jesus looks every bit like the Christ, the Son of the living God that Peter had confessed him to be just six days earlier. This sight had to have been utterly overwhelming. Visually, it must have looked like everything was coming together. All of God's purposes and promises, heaven and earth coming together. And these three men, Peter, James, and John, were here to witness the moment. And perhaps that is the reason that Jesus allows these disciples to see these things. So that they would understand, to a degree, in, in the moment, even more so in the future, that everything truly was 
coming together. Everything that God had promised through the prophets, even heaven and earth, they needed to be reassured of the true identity of the teacher that they were following, that this was the beloved son of the living God. Because what comes after this would undoubtedly shake their faith. After leaving this mountain in the north, the path of Jesus and his disciples would wind ever southward, ultimately to Jerusalem, where Jesus would receive, like a king, on Palm Sunday, a king's welcome, but ultimately die that following Friday like a criminal. As visually stunning as the transfiguration is for its brightness, so the day of Jesus' death would be stunning for its darkness. The sun refusing to shine its light even in the middle of the day. John writes in his gospel that Jesus is the light of the world that the darkness cannot overcome. But it would certainly look like evil and darkness overcame Jesus at the cross. So were these disciples to assume that Jesus had failed because he died? Were they to assume that the event of the transfiguration was little more than just a glorious mirage? Well, not if they were listening. And this is precisely what the Father calls disciples of Jesus to do. This is my beloved Son, he says. Listen to him. Because when we listen, we disciples of Jesus hear him speak freely and openly about what happens next. Repeatedly, he tells his disciples that this journey to Jerusalem is about his being betrayed, suffering, dying, and rising again. On the mountain of transfiguration, Jesus is glorious, and he's in control. And on the hill of Golgotha, he will still be glorious and in control. In fact, You could argue that his true nature will shine through even more brightly at the cross. That true nature which John speaks of in 1 John 4 when he says, God is love. At Valentine's Day, we might show the people around us that we love them with chocolates, flowers, and gifts. But Jesus says it best. When he says, greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. The transfiguration teaches us to take Jesus seriously when he speaks. The cross is the moment when he speaks loud and clear. It is finished. I love you. I have won your forgiveness. I have rescued you. Death is defeated, and heaven is yours, for you are mine. In the weeks to come, 
we will join Jesus in making the journey from this mountain to Mount Calvary. And on one hand, the season of Lent can feel a little dark and contemplative as we consider the reason why Jesus had to die. Because of our sinful, evil rebellion against the good and holy creator. But on the other hand, the light of Jesus will shine brighter than ever before. The light of his goodness and his self-giving love. All so that you might know that love and shine, reflecting his glory. That's what Paul's talking about at the end of our epistle reading today from 2 Corinthians 3 when he says, But we all, with unveiled faces, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord the Spirit. Paul will pick up that theme as well in uh, Ephesians chapter 5 when he is writing about a husband's love for his wife, and he says, actually, that's a picture of Christ's love for his bride, the church. Hear what Paul says. He says, husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. You see the picture. It's the picture of the church shining, radiant, pure, and free because of the love of our glorious King for us. So may his love shine forth in our hearts and lives this week that those around us might experience his glorious goodness as well. In the name of Jesus, amen. Now may the peace of God which surpasses all understanding guard and keep our hearts and minds today and always in Christ Jesus, the glorious one. Amen.